I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. So today we have a good episode for you. We had a sit down with Craig Stanley of South Kingston Emergency Medical Services up in Wakefield, Rhode Island. Really interesting conversation. And I think we had a really good talk about uh, essentially medical legal for EMS. Yeah. Why is this such a big deal? I mean, why, why, why in uh, initial education is this such uh, an area of limited focus? You know, I just really don't think that people, especially students and newer providers, I don't think they understand the gravity of how how liable they truly are when it comes to patient care, when it comes to documentation, when it comes to patient refusals. So with Craig, uh, you know, and, and Jason's probably going to go into his background a little bit because Jason knows him pretty well personally. Uh, but with Craig being a consultant, it was really neat to be able to kind of pick his brain to see what he looks for and to see the weaknesses that we have in our own profession as far as from the legal standpoint. Yeah, I think we far too often underappreciate this. And uh, as people are listening to this, they're, I'm sure you're out there saying, yep, I got, I got deposed on this or I had to testify in court. Until you go through that, you really don't understand how important this is. And now in this day and age, with everything being recorded, everybody's got uh, cell phones, there's security footage, ring doorbells, uh, there's just so much out there. Uh, But Brandon, do you think this is something that people really need uh, to be afraid of? Or can this really just be something that protects us? I think it it, it could be more of a protection thing. I think that they should respect it, that they should respect the, the magnitude of their responsibility in that, you know, think twice about just talking people into a refusal. And that's, that's one thing that, you know, I tell my students, that's one thing that I try to practice myself, no matter if it's three o'clock in the morning and we got skull drug all day. You know, if, if, you're do, if you do the right thing, there's a difference between educating the patient on their options and talking them into a refusal. And, you know, that's that's one of the things that uh, Craig tackles in this discussion. So I think that's a really good point of uh, really just focusing on doing the right thing, not necessarily being afraid of getting sued over something, but just doing the right thing. And so what we're going to hear today is uh, from uh, Craig Stanley. So Craig Stanley uh, worked uh, in around Metro Atlanta for uh, quite a while and retired with uh, one of the major Metro uh, Atlanta Fire Departments and uh, has since gone on um, to Rhode Island where he is uh, the director of EMS for South Kingston uh, Emergency Medical Services. But kind of the, the, the thing that Craig has is he has a lot of experience um, in reviewing PCRs, in reviewing cases. Uh, he understands uh, what liability is. He understands what responsibility is and how those two uh, kind of meet and uh, really goes through well of uh, showing us that we don't really have to be afraid of it, but we always want to do what is right for the patient and to make sure that we document that appropriately to protect them and to protect ourselves. Absolutely. And uh, to dive into his background a little bit, I mean, Craig is, like you said, years of experience, but he, uh, he's been involved with education and training, both on the EMS side of things, on the fire side of things. And uh, even all the way up into the administrative processes, you know, the, the, at the National Fire Academy, 
taking EMS special operations, uh, management of emergency medical services, some pretty high level courses at the national level. Um, very impressive background as far as education wise and in training. All right, so let's uh, jump in with Craig Stamp. All right, Craig. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us tonight, man. We really appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, quite an honor to be here. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, hey, if you don't mind, just kind of fill in our listeners on uh, on what you do and what your current role is, and you know, w- what is your specialty? Why did we bring you in here today? Yeah, well, my role now is uh, director of emergency medical services for a uh, uh, South Kingstown EMS, which is located in Rhode Island on the coast. Um, in addition to that and the other roles I've, I've had, um, today we're going to talk about consulting, which was a, uh, area that I got into a couple of, number of years ago. So let's back up just a, just a quick second on that. So you are, uh, you are a director now, but you didn't start out as a director. You haven't always been in administration. What's your yeah. background, uh, as far as in the field? Yeah, I started my career with DeKalb County EMS, um, in 1988. Oh, that makes me feel better. Yeah, that and was that's in uh, that's in DeKalb yeah. County, Georgia, correct? Yes, that's correct. DeKalb County, Georgia. I worked for DeKalb for several years, and then uh, moved on to Gwinnett County Fire um, in EMS. Uh, started as a paramedic firefighter, uh, moved up to the ranks uh, to assistant chief. Had a variety of positions through there. Um, did my time there, um, and then after that, just trying to figure out what you know, like everything else. What do you want to do? What do you what I want to be when I grow up? Um, did some work uh, for Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, critical care, uh, transport. Um, also worked for uh, Puckett EMS out of Austell. Um, about that time, they uh, started operations in the Chattanooga area, um, and I went up there and helped start that. Um, and then did started really doing some consulting. Uh, and then uh, my wife actually had found this position up here in Rhode Island. She had visited and and liked Rhode Island and said, we should move up there. And I said, well, you kind of got to have a job. I might be retired, but we're not ready to retire in the Bahamas yet. So we still, um, so um, I applied for the job and uh, here I am. So, and that kind of brings us, if we, if we back up yet again, when you were at Gwinnett County. So that was uh, actually where, where Craig and I met uh, the first time. Craig was actually a supervisor on my shift. And uh, I can tell you, uh, Craig was always a, just, even within the um, fire EMS uh, realm was uh, such a huge supporter of EMS. And he was actually just such a real easy guy to work for. Um, Always uh, extremely supportive. Um, You know, not one of the, uh, what we call the paramedic police show up in a white shirt and tell you everything you did wrong. Um, So I can say from a personal standpoint, Craig, I, I appreciate what you, what you did for our profession, what you did for me and my professional development. Um, And it's kind of cool that we can, uh, be on this side of it uh, and talking to you. So let me ask you, where did this whole thing, um, you know, give us some, either some examples or just where did this kind of passion come from on this medical legal side? Is it uh, things that you saw happen, uh, didn't see that you didn't see happen, or is this just an area that is lacking in education? I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think one of the things that I, as a supervisor and seeing what's going on, I really noticed the issues we have in the industry at refusals, um, not transporting people to the hospital. Um, I, it's a problem in EMS. Um, it's a problem that we don't want to talk about. Um, I've done presentations around the country 
on refusals. Um, and like here, no warranties on Polar Express, I'll push buttons. Um, so certain things need to be said. And I think certain things need to be brought to the forefront. Um, unfortunately, I think as an industry, we do a very good job. People come to work. They want to do a good job, provide patient care. Um, and we really have two facets of it where maybe a call didn't go well and things, you know, didn't come out positive or we, we just don't want to take people to hospital. Um, and unfortunately, we have that um, in, in the industry. So from, from that standpoint, I just got, you know, got involved in that and teaching and really wanted to make the industry better and, and for people to learn from mistakes. And Craig, if you don't mind, just for the maybe the student listeners that we have, would you mind explaining what a consultant would do? You know, whenever whenever you were explaining in your introduction about being yeah. a consultant, you know, explain the situation to where an, yeah. a consultant would be utilized and what their role is in a uh, in a lawsuit. Yeah, and and again, I am not an attorney. I do not provide legal advice. Um, so how it works is an attorney will call me. Um, and say, hey, I have this case um, I'd like for you to look at. They'll give me a little bit of information. I'll look at it um, and, and try to determine. Basically, what I'm looking at generally is the patient care report. Um, then they'll give me some background on what happened. Um, or they don't have the patient care report. Um, and we'll go from there, and I'll look at it. And, and not every case I take, um, I may look at it and go, you know, this was – this, this was a bad call from the very beginning. I'm glad I wasn't the medic on this call. I'm not sure how I would have handled this. Um, and, and sometimes people give me a hard time. So how could you, you know, work for these attorneys? And, but the thing is, is that they're, sometimes they're trying to, you know, things didn't go well or someone made a mistake. That needs to be brought forward. So a typical, I'll look at the report. I'll make the decision of, yeah, I think we have something here. Um, and then I'll tell the attorney what it is and what my concerns are. And then from there, depending on what it is, I'll have the attorney, if the lawsuit has been filed or they're thinking about filing a lawsuit, then we'll subpoena records. And the things that we'll ask for, depending on where we are in the case, if it's been filed, then of course we have to do subpoenas. If it's open records, then we can just get open records. But usually when we're heading in a direction, people know where we're heading. Would you yeah. say that this is a thing that is pretty prevalent across uh, EMS? I mean, is this something that happens regularly that uh, everyone needs to be just super scared of? Yeah, or yeah. is this it, a thing that just happens? Th this is something that has really picked up, I would say, over the past 10 years, at least from my experience, where attorneys, this was really uncharted territory. Um, and now they're, they're, they're contacting people like myself and, and finding out and, and, and what didn't go well and why. Um, so let's say there's a call, things that I would have them get was obviously a copy of the PCR, um, the policies from the department. Uh, depending on what it is, we will get your training records um, from the agency. Um, the training for when you come on with the agency, what you learned through orientation, what was covered. And then even if, depending on what the case is, we will go back to actually the paramedic training or the EMT training and subpoena. Um, you were taught airway on January 5th, 2006. This is what you were trained on, you tested on, um, and then go from there. Okay, so what are, what are some of the things that, uh, that you're looking for? I mean, certainly we've, we've, we've all been through this module in EMT school and paramedic school of, 
you know, the, if, if you didn't write it down, you didn't do it. Um, you know, all the, the typical things that, uh, that we're told when we're going through our training. But when you're reviewing these types of things, for instance, when we're looking at things like negligence or malpractice, what specifically are you looking for as you review these? And, and really to touch before you touch on that, the things that we need to make sure we know, the, generally the four things they speak of, the duty to act, we've all learned this, uh, breach of duty, damage that was inflicted, and proximate cause. So I'm looking for, was there a policy that we did not follow? Uh, you In your policy, it states you have to do X. You did why we had a bad outcome. There was injury to the patient, and and that's where we look at what what did you do or did you not do? Um, and again, the law is it's clear as mud, um, unfortunately. Um, and then at the end, it's going by policies, and then going, well, three years ago, did you say you should have done this or could have done this? Um, so that's the big thing is if you have a policy, did you follow the policy? Um, and if you didn't, you know, why did you not? Was there a bad outcome? And what's the difference if there, if it's when we talk about policies, if we talk about standard operating procedures versus um, medical standing orders or, or medical orders, what is the difference between those two? Yeah. And really you look at one is standard of care and, and two examples I can give and really scope of practice. So standard of care, we'll talk about, we're going to touch on this probably later. Uh, intubation. All right, so verifying the, the tube is in the trachea, not in the esophagus. The standard of care is entitled CO2. Your policy states that. So you run a call, you intubate a patient, you didn't put them on the entitled CO2, or you did, but it came off. Um, you arrive at the ED and the doctor finds the tube um, in the stomach. Um, right there we have where we did not um, follow our protocol. We do not follow the standard of care. Um, and there's potentially a bad outcome. When we talk about paramedics and, and cases being taken to court, has there been an increase in proven negligence against paramedics? I mean, are we starting to see more and more that paramedics are being proven to be negligent? Yes, I think so. And, and really the cases you have to look at is really and a lot of it depends on the area of the country, um, the, the protocols, the EMS system. But what we'll find is where we might even make it to court. You know, for us to actually go to trial could take several times. And most agencies are going to settle. Because um, one, if it's a government agency, they don't want their, if something went wrong in the papers, if they can prevent that. Um, but we're finding where attorneys are you know, getting the experts, finding out what happened, what didn't happen, and they're taking them into court. Yeah. Well, when you talk about a settlement, that kind of brings up something that uh, that sparks a little bit of fear in me, and that's the financial cost and the burden of defending yourself in court, uh, whether or not your department is going to financially represent you or whether they're going to uh, provide legal representation for you. I mean, what yeah. is, do you have an average number? And I guess that that's a, that's a broad question, but you know, you, you can estimate and, and really go back to your question. Most agencies I find if you did your job and things just didn't go well um, and they feel, you know, we're going to defend you. We're going to support you. Um, the agency generally take care of the legal um, obligation there, where if you did something that was grossly ne negligent, 
um, it was a bad, just, you just grossly mismanaged this and somebody died. Um, they're liable to say, we're not going to defend you. Um, it's kind of like the thing of, well, you go, we go. Well, sometimes you go, you go. Um, and, 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 and attorney fees can run from anywhere on an average of 150 to 250 an hour. And again, it depends on, you know, an attorney in New York city is going to be paid a little bit different than an attorney, um, in South Georgia. So talk a little bit more about, you, you brought up the gross negligence. You know, there's certainly a, a, a whole spectrum of uh, things that are negligent. Take us through a few of those uh, from gross negligence to something that may be a little bit more subtle and how those are dealt with differently. Yeah, an, an example could be, in, in this this happens, let's say, and purely hypothetical, um, the stretcher's being pulled out of the back of the truck. Um, the little catch hook doesn't catch. The patient comes out, the stretcher drops, and the back of the patient's um, head strikes uh, the diamond plate um, and causes injury. Okay, from from that point, we did have negligence. Um, we caused an injury, um, and, and, and we will have a payout from that. It was purely an accident. It wasn't intentional. Um, so from there, we could say we did have negligence. Now, gross negligence, where you intentionally did something, um, to cause harm or perform something that really wasn't in your scope, but did have a bad outcome. An example I can think of is, is let's say you were, the police department was sedating a patient or subduing a patient and you assisted in that. Um, and the patient had a bad outcome or the person in custody had a bad outcome and you participated in that restraining the patient. Um, and the patient died, there would be an example of gross negligence. So one, you were not trained um, for that, and you performed something that clearly wasn't in your scope of practice. Yeah, and that what also kind of scares me, not it doesn't scare me, but it definitely raises concern, is not only what you do can get you in these issues, also what you don't do. Correct. The, the lack of providing certain care, Correct. you know, and before we even talked, before we, when we were discussing what we were going to talk about in this episode, you know, you brought up the, uh, the, the famed lift assist. The three things that I call the seven figure payouts in EMS are one, we show up to the ER with the tube in the belly. Um, we get into an accident on the way to a call and we don't transport somebody with a bad outcome. Generally, when those things go, generally there's seven uh, figure payouts. If you've watched yeah. the news recently, we had an episode in Tampa where uh, crews went out on a patient having a stroke and didn't transport. Um, and if you notice it now, they just had their settlement at $2.7 million. Um, and, it, and if you look at the, the, the case, clearly they, it was a case where they didn't have a patient, supposedly didn't initially do an assessment. Um, and, and I've worked several of those. Um, of that, and I'm, I'm actually working one case in Georgia as as we speak related to that topic. Um, and then yeah, and they, go ahead. Well, I was going to say people seem to have this misconception that if you tell radio, if you say, you know, uh, radio, we're back in service, no patient at this location, or radio, you know, the uh, subject was assisted, that they're covered, that they're cleared. Yeah, no, they're not, not whatsoever. And things agencies need to have. They need to have a definition of a patient in their, in their policy. Um, and the thing is, you, you can't, you know, who decides who a patient is? The medic at 2 a.m., kind of what you're saying, Brandon. Um, the attorney, I assure you, the attorney knows the answer of what a, a uh, patient is. The agency, 
you know, the, the no patient canceled on scene, it, it does two things. One, we're, we're not taking care of what we're, our legal duty obligation to do an assessment with somebody. Um, and, and, and really, that's lost data and liability. Um, and, and, and you think about, and, and that's something I found early in my career was the amount of refusals that an agency was, was getting. And I'm like, how can these many, this many people be calling 911 and actually refuse to go to the hospital? Um, so things that you got to do is you got to follow up on that. And, and, you know, if you have a policy where if you get a refusal and you get a repeat call within 12 hours, the supervisor needs to know it or 24 hours. Um, yeah. I mean, and then we, we can talk a little about policies, but that's, you know, and a patient, and the, the, um, the definition I like to use as a patient and what I use as a standard is a patient is defined as an individual who was sick, injured, wounded, or otherwise incapacitated or helpless. Furthermore, any person who has a reasonable potential for injury or an assessment has been initiated. Yeah, that, that potential word, that's huge. It, that's huge. That's, that's, you know, they were in a car accident. Everybody looks fine. We, you know, and the thing is, is we, 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 we get to a call, and what do we really check? You know, and, and I'll look at calls where we were, you know, if the call came in at, you know, at nine o'clock at night, we get there in 10 minutes, we get out of the vehicle, out of our truck, we're at an apartment complex, we walk up, you know, it takes a few minutes to get up there. And the total call took 20 minutes and we went in service. Okay, so I'm going to look at, you know, did we really interview the patient? Uh, how much did we really gather? You know, and really, what do we gather? We gather a set of vital signs. We, you know, we may put them on the monitor a blood sugar, we do an assessment, and what is it really telling us? And I look at it to where, you know, we transport patients to the ED, and generally, if, if the doctor's not sure what's going on, the doctor's on the phone with uh, somebody in, in another area saying, hey, I don't know what's wrong with this patient. Um, they're consulting with, you know, gastro, cardiac, neuro. Um, so a physician, with all of their training and experience, you know, is looking things up and, and trying to make decisions. How can we, as an industry, go on the scene for 10 minutes and have the, um, make a statement, well, everything we check is okay, you really don't need to go. So, you know, as, as we take especially students through the medical legal side of this, and especially as EMTs, and you describe for them that there's actually people out there that will refuse to take people to the hospital, and they do everything they can to talk them out of it. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, like in any profession, um, not everyone does that. I would say the majority do not do that. However, we do know that there are people that are likely to do that and not just in pre-hospital and EMS, but, uh, yeah. you know, there's, there's people that try to take the easiest path. What are some of the, as we're talking now about patient refusals, and I think we should probably spend a few minutes on this. What are some reasons that you've seen overall why a paramedic or an EMT would really look to not try to take a patient uh, to the hospital and get a refusal. Yeah, I, I think I think we have a, a combination of things. Um, we we one we we have an agency that doesn't have a policy and proper training. Is there adequate supervision? Um, and, and the thing is, I think about is at two a.m. Who's in charge of the organization? The medic running the call. Um, you can have policies and, and, and hope everybody follows them. But at the end of the day, the person who is in that uniform in that person's living room is in charge of the organization. Um, also, tunnel vision. Um, that's a factor. How are you dispatched? I, I see a lot of times where responders are dispatched to somebody with a headache. 
and they think, oh, we're going to somebody on a headache. Well, when I hear headache, first thing I'm thinking of is stroke, some kind of hemorrhagic issue, not, oh, you've called me for a headache. So I think we get tunnel vision based on the dispatch information. Other thing we get is fatigue. Um, you know, we, we have where we've, we're on our 15th call. Um, we're, we're running so many calls, we're tired. Um, and we have a bad attitude. Maybe we, this is really not, and this is where, I, you know, I push buttons and things need to be said. They have a bad attitude. Maybe they don't want to do this. And, and I find in my career, there's nothing more lethal in the back of that truck is for somebody who doesn't want to be there. And, and, and I think, and it's okay. And, and I respect that if people get into the job and realize, you know what, this is not for me. That is okay. I respect that. Um, and, and that's not a problem. But our job is to take, it, it, it's very simple. I look at it as, from EMS perspective, is we have a patient, we have a med unit, and we have a doctor. Our job is to take people to the ER. That's what we do. And the thing is, is you got to understand when, when something doesn't go well in a call and you're working with a jury, and I'm not a jury expert, but I've been involved or witnessed how juries are picked. And it's, it's very scientific. There's a lot to that. But a jury looks at us is our job as paramedics, as EMS and EMTs to take people to the ER. That's our number one job. And when we don't do that. I say, and I'll tell my folks, I'll say, you know, there's some things I just, I could spin and some things I can't defend. And in the jury's mind, you know, we carry all these medicines, we, 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 we're able to do all these procedures, but in their eyes, our job is to take them to the doctor, to the ER. And at the end of the day, that's our job. Yes, we stabilize them and we run, you know, critical calls and, and do, do great work. And, and even in that, we could do something on the way to the hospital and maybe have an error or make a mistake and they can live with that because what is our job in their eyes? And you understand when the jury's picked, the three of us are not going to be in the jury box. Um, it's not going to be anybody that has anything to do with EMS or medical. They're going to be people that don't. Um, so that's important to, for, for people to understand. Yeah. Most of the time, a common layperson, they have no idea there's a difference between an EMT and a paramedic. They, they do not. They and, and, and they really don't care. I mean, they right. just, well, your paramedic is just take people to the hospital. And then when they start seeing where they we went out and, and tried to tell a person that, well, we really didn't need to go. Everything we check is OK and don't transport them. And there's a bad outcome. They just don't understand that. Um, and frankly, I don't either. And, and I've had you know, and I take this very seriously. I take what I, I've, I've spent my entire adult life in this career. And in a few occasions, I've had the opportunity to meet family members involved in cases. Um, and I take it very serious. And in times I have to look them in the eye and say, as an industry, we drop the ball. And that's hard to do. That's, that's, but, but in some cases we do. And as Jason pointed in both of you that, we, we, we do come to work and do a good job, but we have some people that this just isn't the business for them. And it's a huge liability. Absolutely. So walk us through. So we, we're, we're working here and we have a patient and we've assessed them appropriately. We've um, advised them that uh, we really need to be able to take, we really need to take them to the hospital. They absolutely refuse. Yeah. Uh, we need to still protect ourselves there. Yes. Walk us through the appropriate steps to protect ourselves. Okay. The, the first thing, obviously, we've done a, a complete exam. 
we've educated the patient on what we think might be going wrong and, and why it's important for them to go. Um, and then refusing to go, we need, we need the help from either a medical control or a supervisor. Um, so when we have those patients, they're having crushing chest pain. We put them on the EKG. We can look at them and go, you need to go, sir. This is, this is important. Um, we, one, we need to call medical control. We need to speak to the physician. Now, that caveat to that I talk about is sometimes calling medical control is like a box of chocolates. Um, and you need to make sure you're speaking to a physician. Um, is the conversation recorded? And who's on the other end of the radio or phone? Is it lost in translation? And sometimes we know how the ER is. You say, this is, you know, medic five, I need to speak to physician. And you're talking to the nurse and they're relaying information. No, I need to speak to physician. Also get the physician on there and have the physician speak over the phone and, and, and tell the patient, we really need you to come in. And it's not where you're not good enough as the medic to convince the patient. That's one more tool that you have. And I, and I think about it as, as my mom. My mom um, had cancer. She was treated by a, a great oncologist at Emory. And if that doctor told her to put her face in the lake three times a day, she would do it. Um, so you got to look at your, your audience that, you know, if it's an older person, getting that physician on the phone to say, hey, ma'am, you really need to come in. This is why. Uh, have a supervisor come to the scene. And then if you've exhausted all those things, you want to have them obviously sign the refusal. You want to witness uh, a third party witness. Um, and, and, you know, if anything changes, come back. But the clear with that is one document, a complete exam, complete set of vital signs. Um, what I, I, I never want to see WNL on a, um, a, a PCR. So what do you think WNL stands for? We never looked. Exactly. Um, uh, good radials. What does that mean on a release? I see releases where they'll say good radials. Well, what does that mean? So if they have a radial, I mean, what is their pressure? I mean, that we, we just can't have that. Yeah, you do you have a one plus, a two plus radial, so on and so forth. Yeah. And man, I really love that you're hitting on that because this is something that I try to tell my students every year or every program and they kind of roll their eyes at me. And they're just like, oh, okay, because I'll tell them, look, don't say ABCs are intact. I want you to explain how the ABCs are intact. Yeah. You know, speaking in full sentences without respiratory difficulty. That that explains an intact airway and, and good breathing. Not just ABCs intact, everything else WNL. That's, man, that is incredibly ineffective documentation. And I'm really glad to hear that come from an expert, too. Yeah, because I look for that and I'm like, okay, that, that, that tells me what we're, you know, what, what, what we're looking for. And should we be upfront with our patients up to the point yes. of you could die? Yes. I mean, even if, you, even if maybe you agree that uh, maybe they really don't need to go to the hospital. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, I'm going to guess the, the, uh, the, the judge, the uh, prosecuting attorney, and the jury doesn't care that you got it right a thousand times before. No. They only care that you missed it this once. It, absolutely. And, the, and that's the thing is you need coaches, sir. This, you have what potentially is a life-threatening condition. And if you, if we don't, you know, transport you, we don't allow us to take you, there's a chance that you could die. And you want to quote that in your narrative and make sure they understand what you've said. And certainly from an agency standpoint, um, where we've ran calls, we've spent time on the scene, you need to go, we've gone in service and gone back out to the same address when they're in cardiac arrest. Um, that, so that, let's, 
that happens. But, and, 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 but if you go back and look at, okay, well, you know, we were out there, we we're on the scene 30 minutes trying to get this person to go. Let's take it to a, a one that's maybe a little bit more subtle. We have a uh, pretty minor fender bender. Um, they may be complaining of something very minor. So, of course, the police are, well, get EMS out here and let's let them at least look at you. Um, minor damage, but uh, you did an assessment and they are a patient. Uh, right. You do agree that they do not need to go. How do we handle that patient? I would never, I would never state that you don't need to go. I, I just, you open yourself up to such liability because how, what are you basing that on? Because what's going to happen is how, how, how did you determine that the patient didn't need to go? I know we can look at the defender benders and we can all with our experience go that they're, they're okay. They're going to be fine. But to open yourself up to that liability, um, either you go to the hospital or you, you go against medical advice. Um, it, it, you really open yourself up to liability with that because because basically you're diagnosing basically you're you're making the assumption um you know and you might see a report where somebody says the, the neck cervical spine was normal without any you know any kind of issues well how do you know that um so i i'm very leery of, of when we go out and tell people you know everything we check is fine um and you just don't need to go so there's and really I, no middle I kind of look road. at it as I kind of look at it as if you walk into the emergency room and see the triage nurse and tell her what happened. Um, they're not going to tell you. Well, you know what? I, I think you're going to be okay. Um, can, can you sign here? And, and uh, you know, if, if you don't feel better later, just come back. Um, and I guess my my thing is, why is it in our realm that we think that's okay? That's a great point. Um, and and that just doesn't doesn't happen. And I kind of look at it as and I use this analogy in one of my lectures of, you know, if you have a package at home and you call FedEx to come out and they come out and they look at, they say, well, okay, where's your package? Here it is. And they measure it and they go, okay, is this, is this package really important? Well, yeah, I guess <laughs> I want it shipped. Okay. Well, um, we only take real important packages, um, but we'll take it if you want. But we, we, there's another company called um, UPS and they kind of take packages that aren't so important. And we could call them here, and they'll gladly take it for you. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a silly analogy, but I, I looked no, at it's it great. Of, 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 really? I mean, I, I just, and that's my analogy. And I think of in certain, you know, circumstances or certain or, um, agencies, configuration where the fire department may go out and call a private ambulance service to transport um, because they feel that uh, this patient isn't uh, uh, critical enough for us to transport. So we'll call a, a private ambulance service and, and nothing to downgrade a private ambulance service. Um, but it, to me, I, I use that FedEx and UPS analogy um, that every person that calls is important. And, and I think sometimes we get set up and, and, and not, no fault to our own, but you think about when you're, you know, in EMT school, paramedic school, a lot of our training is for potentially the critical call. So we're waiting for the big one. And I call it the hair, teeth, and eyeballs call, the, 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 the critical call, uh, the life and death call. And really, the stats tell us that's really not, not that many. And I'll use, and Jason, I'll use Gwinnett County as an example. And next year, they may run 90,000 calls a year. 
all of those, they may run 520 cardiac arrests. Um, that's about 0.6%. I'm not a statistician. I pretend to be. That's not a lot. So when you look at the big scheme of things, what do we mostly do? Um, but the problem is, is it, not really the problem, but I think sometimes the setup is, is we're geared. We, we take ALS. We take all these, you know, our training to innovate, to airway. Uh, we run tons of scenarios of trauma. And that's not always what we do. Um, and I think we, as, as providers that get out into the street, realize it's not all about the hair, teeth, and eyeballs. Yeah. And every call is important. And on that note, I want to bring up something. I want to play devil's advocate for a second because I know good and well, as soon as we post this, I'm going to have a friend or a coworker be like, yeah, but what about Miss So-and-so that we go to every single shift? There's never anything wrong with her. You know, she just wants to talk. She just wants her blood pressure checked and there's never anything wrong with her. You're saying that I need to transport her every single time we go out to her. I guarantee you I'm going to have somebody tell me that 100%. And the one time we don't, she's having a stroke. And, and, and you have nothing to stand on. You, you get complacent. And, and one time you're going to go out there and she's not going to be well. Um, and you're going to let your guard down. Um, and, 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 you know, and this is what this is what we signed up for. This is the rodeo we signed up for. Um, and, and, and through my career, I, I've witnessed where the tones will go off and, and people will just make this face and sigh like another call. Um, that's what we signed up for. Um, that, that, that's why we're here. Um, and, and, and don't get me wrong. We, we do have agencies and, and places where they run a lot of costs in 24 hours and people get tired. That's human nature, but this is what we signed up for. Our job is to run calls. So let me, let me bring it back. I, I know we all hate hypotheticals, but I know like, uh, like Brandon said, there's people listening to this and they're going, well, what about this patient? So let me bring another one in that I know it's a call that we've all run. You've got a patient who is likely intoxicated. We don't know to what level. Perhaps, the, you know, especially with the opioid crisis going on right now, you, you have a patient that is obviously impaired. They are potentially or very real, realistic um, potential that they are a harm to themselves or others. Police department's going, we don't want anything to do with them. They haven't done enough for us to arrest them. You call medical control, and medical control's going, I'm not taking the liability on that. So now you're dealing with, is this a refusal? Is this false imprisonment? Is this protective custody? Yeah, that's a great scenario. And that, and that happens quite a bit. We find where uh, we find ourselves by ourselves looking around and, and nobody's helping us. The police are going, hey, I'm not involved. And the prime example, what you just said, um, I don't know of any case law, and we hear this a lot where if I take you against my will, it's assault, and battery, and kidnapping. I don't know of it, and there may be out there, but I'm, I'm not very familiar with cases where we took somebody that was uh, not alert, not capable of understanding what was going on, uh, altered mental status, where they really didn't want to go, but we really couldn't, we couldn't make that determination they could, and we took them. Um, I would rather have to explain that um, than not taking them and they aspirate half hour later. But what about the, the, the combative patient that absolutely does not want to go? You would literally have to put them in cuffs or restrain them to get them in the back of your ambulance. Yeah, that's where I'm looking at call medical control, doing some sedation, very limited sedation, 
Um, it's kind of one of those things where you just can't leave them here. Um, they're a danger to themselves. Um, so that's the key. We're having a supervisor involved. And as the field medic of, of putting that responsibility on the supervisor, saying, hey, I need some help here. Work as a team. Calling medical control. And like I said, sometimes call medical control is like a box of chocolates. Um, you're, you're never sure what you're going to get. And they're going to say, well, no, I'm not, I'm not signing off on that. But you're left there with the patient. So during this day and age, we have to be very careful whenever we are sedating patients. And how would you encourage paramedics or how, what is the liability placed on medics on scene of a patient who is combative, potentially excited delirium, like Jason's kind of alluding to, let's say very altered, and the police are physically restraining the patient to the point to where they cannot breathe or it could be a life threat to the patient. Does the medic have a legal liability to step in and intervene? Yes. I believe, I believe they do. I believe if it was to go to court, they would. It's kind of the thing where um, you, there's no plausible deniability where you could say, well, I, you know, I didn't step in. You're the medical expert there. Um, and, 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 and your scenario, is, it unfortunately, is quite common. And I've worked cases where, and I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, where a EMS personnel engaged in helping um, restrain, physically restrain, the patient, the police officers were not using the correct procedure to restrain them from the beginning, and then the EMS person uh, followed in suit, and there was a bad outcome, and everyone there was was held liable. Um, so you got to be very careful with that. You got to follow your protocols, and again, it goes back to, you know, what did you observe, and did you you had a duty to act? Um, and you know, this is clearly from my standpoint as a medical patient um, and do we just need to chill them out with, you know, take, just taking the edge off just enough to get the stretcher, get them on the stretcher and get them to the hospital. Is that always easy? No. And then we have, you know, the scenario we have several officers trying to restrain somebody um, and, and it's not going well. Um, and as I go back to my disclaimer um, in the beginning, that when you're dealing with legal and, and after the fact, everything is clear as mud. What should we be doing as, uh, you know, we, we are all, you know, we're working together. We're working together on the ambulance. We're working together at a fire department with the police department, sheriff's office. You know, we're all one big happy family. However, we are there, if we are truly there as a patient advocate, what do we do when maybe we are not the ones specifically in charge and we see care that is not, either not appropriate or care that is withheld inappropriately, or harm that is being done to the patient. Not just to cover ourselves, uh, which is a big part of that, but how do we become a patient advocate either during or after from a medical legal standpoint? Yeah, that's a great question. Unfortunately, that, that, that becomes a common scenario, especially when you have different agencies involved. Um, you're ultimately, everybody on the scene is ultimately responsible for the, the care of the patient and following procedures and duty to act and, and doing what is right. But unfortunately, like your scenario, things don't always go. Um, I think you have to be where you might have to make a tough decision where you can say, I'm going to take over care of the patient. Um, you may need to call a supervisor there, um, involve them. Um, or, you know, have no problem of contacting that agency and saying, hey, this is, this is what we dealt with and, and, and it's not appropriate. Um, 
it's 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 better to do that obviously after the call and have a discussion um and and not in the middle of a call but sometimes you just have to make a, a tough decision and say no this is this is what we're doing um and but the key to that is to make sure if we make that call that what we're doing is we're following procedure um and we're doing what's in the best interest of the patient so what are some resources that people can go to? Do you have uh, any suggestions for either websites or articles or um, just places people can go to get, uh, you know, a little more information? And maybe it's, you know, I think we can learn a lot from reading uh, some case studies and see, you know, I think uh, Brandon brought up, we can go back and look at uh, what some people have done wrong that that can influence the way we do things or don't do things. Yeah. Um and now it seems like, you know, obviously the, the internet um, websites, the EMS ones, every day is a case. In fact, I think on, on one of them today, I saw a case where uh, in Colorado where we gave ketamine uh, to a patient, kind of the scenario you talked about, and had, had a bad outcome. Um, so we're constantly seeing uh, cases, you know, online of, of things getting sued. One, one website that I feel is, is pretty good. And this is out of um, out of Cincinnati, um, and the gentleman there, and I'll give this to you here. The University of Cincinnati uh, does a newsletter, Fire and EMS Law newsletter. Um, it's free, and um, the director there, he's an attorney, Mr. Lawrence Bennett, um, and he provides case summaries for a lot of different cases, and it could be from where, you know, medical, we made a mistake, to labor law, to any kind of uh, case law related to fire or EMS. Um, so, people, if they, they search that, um, he sends a newsletter, and, and it has great information. It really breaks down the case, um, and it's a great resource for you to look at and go, okay, well, this is what happened. And the, and as you look at all these cases, and this goes back to where my my disclaimers it's a lot of it's clear as mud a lot of things will depend on the court um a lot of things will depend on the state um things will depend on whether the the court will deem that the government agency had immunity sovereign immunity that they you can't sue a, a government agency or they may rule well actually the the employees can be held liable for that um but this is a, a very good resource that um that's good. It has a lot of cases on there. So Craig, thank you so much for your time today, man. It's, it's truly been a pleasure. No, no, thank you for, for having me. It, it was a pleasure. Um, the, the, the platform you have here, the, the website I think is great. I share it with, with my personnel. Um, so I think you guys have uh, something going on that that's very good. I think beneficial. I think the, the, the platform you're using, um, is very good and very worthwhile for people's time. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.